We return this evening to the Bible reading in Ephesians in chapter 5 and verse 1. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Paul is exhorting all Christians to imitate or resemble God in their lives. And the reason is that they are God's dear children. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that person is pronounced righteous in the sight of God by God himself, right in relation to God's law, and then at the same time he's adopted into God's family. And we become children of God, enjoying all the liberties and privileges of his children. And so the, the Christian, therefore, has a new standing before God when he or she believes. Before God, the holy God, and before his law, the Christian is not guilty. He or she can never, never, never be condemned again for their sin. Past sin, present sin, future sin is all covered and forgiven in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the believer has a new standing. Our sin placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his obedience and righteousness reckoned to our account. So there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. But at the same time, God is so gracious in that he adopts us into his family. We not only have a new standing, but we have a new status. We are the children of God. And God the Father cares for his children. He loves them, he pities them, he protects them, he provides for them, and they are richly blessed by God the Father. And so a Christian is one of the dear children of God. And the children of God are called upon to resemble God. And you may think that this is impossible. But this is what God calls us to do. Now there's some ways in which we can never, never be like God. We must be clear on this. God is eternal. We had no beginning. He has no end. He has no birthday. He doesn't age. We have a beginning. We're born. But God is everlasting. He spans all the centuries of time. And he will be and is always the eternal I am. God is also omnipotent. His power is unlimited. There's nothing too hard for God to do. He created the universe by the word of his mouth. He upholds the universe in his power. God has done many wonderful works in redeeming his people. God is almighty. We can never be like that. We're weak, we're human, we are fragile. God also is omniscient. He knows everything. God never has the need to do a Google there's no information he doesn't have or know. 
He knows everything about everyone and everything. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is present everywhere at every point of space with his whole being. So you really can't go to any part of the world where God is not. And yet, we can never, never become like God in these ways. Unlike what the Mormons teach, we can never become God or gods. That is wrong. God is the high and the lofty one. He's distinct from his creation. But we can become godlike if we are believers. There are his communicable attributes, his holiness, his righteousness, his love. And so Christians are called upon to be holy in the sense of being separated from the world, being devoted to God, being righteous and being consistent, having a regard to God's standards, God's law, and to resemble God in loving, in loving God and in loving one another. That is God's big picture and plan for the church, that we should imitate, that we should resemble God. And God has chosen us in Christ that we should be holy and without blame for him in love. That's God's purpose. And so the Apostle Paul here is calling Christians to resemble and imitate God. Now John Calvin, in his Institutes, writing in the 16th century Geneva, he describes Christians of his day as staggering, limping, and even crawling on the ground, he says, making little progress in grace. And that's how some of you may be feeling this evening as Christians. You're struggling. You feel your Christian life is in a mess. You feel guilty. You wonder at times whether you can be a Christian. And you're discouraged. But Paul here is, is calling all Christians, weak ones, strong ones, to resemble God. Now, the way he does it is interesting because he doesn't give them a row. He doesn't use a big stick. He doesn't merely give them a set of rules, though there are commands. What he does is to provide guidance in a gospel framework. So in one sense, I'm repeating some of the things said this morning by the pastor. You cannot discuss holiness and obedience in the Christian life without the gospel. It's because of what God has done for us in Christ and by the Spirit that we are Christians and can grow as believers. So the gospel is exciting, it's liberating, it stimulates, it strengthens believers. And what's encouraging in this passage is that the Apostle, in talking about holiness and resembling God, 
he uses central gospel doctrines and saying, look, you Christians, in the framework of the gospel, you must live as my people, God's people, though society may be immoral, it may be pagan, may be materialistic, you may be persecuted, but you are to live as believers, as my children, resembling me. And you may wonder, how on earth is that possible? Well, the apostle makes this clear. First of all, he tells us that a Christian has undergone a radical change in his or her life. If you look back to verse 17 in chapter 4, that is the beginning of a long section which continues to the end of the, the letter, which is very, very, very practical. And verse 17 in chapter 4 is like a, a road sign which says, Stop. A motorist, a cyclist coming to that junction and seeing the sign has to stop, pause, look, listen. And Paul here in verse 17 is saying to believers, Stop. Stop modeling your lives on the lifestyle, the values, the pleasures, the mindset of unbelievers all around you. There may be non-Christian relatives, there may be non-Christian colleagues in work, maybe school friends, college mates who are not believers and they have their own lifestyle. Don't model your life on their mindset and their lifestyle. Because a radical change has occurred in the life of a Christian. Now he describes this life change in two ways. In verses 20, 21 for example, he says, but you have not so learned Christ. In contrast to the lifestyle of non-Christians, the way they live, the way they regard God and the gospel and Christ. But you have not so learned Christ. You've heard about God. You've heard about the holiness of God. You've heard about the majesty, the transcendence of God, the righteousness of God. You've heard about God's love and God's grace. You've heard how God hates sin, punishes sin. You've, you've heard from the gospel of the Lord Jesus that we're all born in sin, under his wrath. And yet this glorious God has acted in love and mercy toward us, sent his Son, who stooped to die on the cross, bearing our sin and our punishment. He was raised from the dead. You've not so learned Christ. This is what you've been learning. And as you were hearing the gospel... So the Holy Spirit made you alive to God. You were able to trust Christ. You, you became his workmanship. He became your Lord. And you became a new person. So a radical change, says the Apostle Paul, has occurred in the life of a believer. You have not so learned Christ. You are not to live like unbelievers because the gospel of Christ has impacted your life. Then he puts it in another way, secondly, 
in verse 22. Do you put off concerning your former conduct the old man? Now Paul is using familiar language here of removing dirty clothes and wearing clean clothes. I shared with my brother the other day how when we were living in a small village in northeast Wales that there was a, an old gentleman in the village who had a horse and cart and uh, it's giving my age away but he delivered milk in the neighbourhood with the, the horse and cart. And when he would arrive in our terraced house my brother, it was the school holiday, he would join him and help him to uh, get the milk out of people. Once uh, or twice I would help, but occasionally I was given a dirty job to clean the stable. My brother doesn't remember much about that, but one night I remember in the school holiday, the old gent was somewhere. The stable was very, very dirty, hadn't been cleaned for quite a while. And... Uh, I had to clear all the muck away, um, fork it out and and get it onto the the nearby field, uh, brush it down, pour the water over the floor, clean it out. Later, put some fresh straw down for the horse. And you almost felt the sense of pride on the part of the horse coming back into the clean stable and uh, smelling it was all clean. But I got home to the house and... The first thing my mother said to me, Errol, you're smelling, you're dirty. Get those clothes off you, they're dirty. Have a wash. Put clean clothes on. That's the language Paul is using. Put off. But what are we to put off? Well, says the apostle, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man. You see, Before the the Lord dealt with us by his Spirit, we were in Adam. All humanity is in Adam. He is our federal head. He is our representative. Adam was created perfectly. And when he obeyed, we obeyed in him. But when he sinned, we sinned in him as well. And we've inherited sin. We're guilty in Adam. And we're sinful by choice and by practice. We're biased against God and towards sin. Now, that is the old man. Before the Holy Spirit quickens us and brings us to Jesus Christ. It's corrupt, says the Apostle Paul. It's full of deceitful lusts. It's dirty. It's marked by bitterness, hatred, impatience, disobedience, rebellion, selfishness indulgence, unbelief, immorality of all the forms we're witnessing today in society. The old man ignores the spiritual, ignores God, ignores the gospel. And there are thoughts and desires and lusts which unbelievers and sometimes believers would not be willing for even their closest relatives to know about. The old man is rotten Filthy, dirty. With all the passions and sins of the old life. Now for a believer, that has changed. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, the apostle says, Our old man is 
crucified with Christ. And when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, the power of sin is broken. We're given a new direction. We have a new life, a new nature, new desires, new values, new direction. We have a new love. We, we want to submit, submit to the Lord. And we begin to see the gospel, to understand it. And there's a change taking place in our life. And so the apostle is emphasizing the middle of this chapter that a change has taken place in the life of a believer. There's been new birth, there's new life, there's new direction. But secondly, notice that there is repenting grace. And so from verse 22 onwards, in verse 23, he goes on to emphasize the point. Notice, for example, in verse 23, you go on being renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's something which continues its present tense. God is at work. He is transforming us. But our thinking, the process of our judgments, and our desires is changing because of the working of the Holy Spirit within us. And here's the key to understanding what it means to put off the old man and put on the new. We understand what renewed means. It is to make new, to restore to a previous condition. Something drastic, as we've noted, went wrong in history. Right at the beginning, Adam was created perfectly. God created him in his own image. He loved God. He enjoyed God. He desired God. He was in fellowship with God, the closest fellowship. God was at the center of Adam's life. God was everything to Adam. And then sin came. The most greatest disaster in world history. And because Adam is our representative, we crushed in Adam, in sin. The consequences have been disastrous in terms of inheriting sin, guilt, punishment of sin, being separated from God. Death has been introduced. Creation is affected. One of the most obvious effects of Adam's sin was in the mind. And what was controlling the mind? Before Adam sinned, he was governed in his thinking by the Spirit. But when he sinned, it was the flesh. And the whole outlook became wrong. The basic way of thinking and reasoning was twisted. Darkness came in. Blindness. Alienation from the life of God. That's what unbelievers are like. But the Holy Spirit comes to an individual and he creates in that individual a new disposition. Controlling the, the Christian is a new principle. It begins to express itself. I remember amazement when I was made a, brought a, as a Christian in college where some of my friends noticed that I was different. 
And one or two of them thought I was going to have religious mania. And they sat me down one day and said they were very worried about me because I was different. But I had different desires to them. There's a different direction. I had different values. I wanted to love God. I, I wanted to be with God's people. I, I now love God's word. And they, they couldn't understand it. And as unbelievers, they wanted nothing to do with it. And there was almost a, a parting of the ways. We, we, we remained friends in one sense, but we were not on the same level. A new disposition. And this is what God does to individuals. And when he creates, he creates us after God's image. We're partaking of his likeness in righteousness. We want to be more consistent. We want to please God. He's created us in true holiness. We want to be devoted to God. That's happened to the believer. But then how do we put on the new man? And that's what Paul deals with in verses 25 onwards. Putting away, he says, in verse 25. And he mentions a list of things. In other words, he's talking about repentance. A Christian is someone who repents daily, often, many times a day. In coming to Christ, we are repenting. We cannot believe on the Lord Jesus Christ unless we are turning from sin. It's the same side, it's the other side of the coin. In turning from sin, we, we are turning to God, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the believer is turning from sin. He's repenting. And so Paul spells it out for us, putting away lying. Now in some cultures, lying is important. It's a way of life. I found that out several times in Asia. I won't name the country. But I remember one occasion where my colleague was trying to arrange transport for us the next day in order for me to preach in, in a, a, a church. And at the, the bus station, the, the man at the ticket office, in their language, uh, shook his head and, and said, no, no tickets. And the colleague turned to me and said, that's good news. And I said to him, well, what's good about that? We, we need the tickets. Oh, he said, if you'd said yes, I'd be worried because that would mean no. But a no means, in our culture, a possible yes. And there they were for five or ten minutes talking and arguing. Then, lo and behold, the man in the office hands two tickets to my colleague. I told you. No means yes. But the apostle is telling us that our, our yes should mean yes, our no should mean no. And there should be no lying at all. And this is in a church context, not just in the community. We're dealing with brothers and sisters. Speak truth with our neighbours outside. We're members of one another. Speak truth. And not only that, but 
If you're angry, if there's righteous anger, don't sin. I think it's a rare occasion when we indulge in righteous anger. But then we shouldn't give place to the devil. And then the apostle says, if, if you've been stealing, stop it. This is the, the new man. Live honestly. Support yourself. And give to those who have need. Watch the way in which you talk. We can talk differently in church, even as believers. In work, we, we, we may be guilty of, of, of bad language. And James reminds us how evil and what a big fire the tongue can cause. Let every corrupt word proceed. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification to impart grace to the hearers. Repentance. I have to watch what I'm saying. I have to set a watch over my lips. I'm a new person. I'm under the Lordship of Christ. And then in verse 31, he talks about bitterness. <clears throat> Being sour. <clears throat> I don't know if you know anyone like that. Unloving. Nursing a grievance against someone. You don't tell them, but you're nursing it. You've got something against a person. And you're cold in your attitude. You become prickly. Or there may be wrath. This literally means boiling over. You can't control your emotions or your words. You're heated. And how often in Christian homes and families, members lose their temper. We expect it of unbelievers. But Christians, we must not lose our tempers. Put it away, says the Apostle Paul. Put away also the anger, the deep settled anger we, we retain in our hearts. Or the clamour, the shouting, the violence, the rage, or the evil speaking. Deliberate, harmful words, slander, gossip. And churches can be infamous for that. And the malice in which we are determined to hate and hurt others. And notice what Paul says, be put away from you. Stop it, repent. Follow after righteousness. Please the Lord. Resemble God in these respects. But then notice thirdly, responding to the Holy Spirit who is within the, the Christian. In verse 30 he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's a very powerful motive to holy living. It's thrilling. The literal translation is the Spirit, yes, the Holy Spirit of God. God, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, we can grieve him by our sinful attitudes. The Holy Spirit is clean. He's pure. He hates sin. 
And his work in us is to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we grieve him when we're bitter, when we're unloving, when we're unforgiving, when we have a bad temper, when we hurt people, when we gossip. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. The Father has planned salvation. The Son accomplishes it for us. And the Holy Spirit applies it. And he comes and gives us new birth. Convicts us of sin. Brings us to Christ. And he goes on strengthening us against sin. And what is begun in the Christian, he will continue. But his purpose is to make us holy. And Paul adds in verse 30, by him, by whom, you are sealed to the day of redemption. Now he is referring right to the very end of history when the Lord Jesus returns personally in glory, visibly. When all the holy angels will come with him and our Lord steps out of heaven and the redeemed in heaven will come too. And here is the consummation of history. The dead in Christ will be raised. We who are alive and remain will be caught up and meet the Lord in the air, will be glorified. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The judgment. There'll be a new earth, a new heaven. And the Lord will have accomplished his purposes. Now, that day of redemption is approaching. And the Holy Spirit is that seal, the guarantee that we will participate in that redemption and glorification. He's indwelling us. He's working in us. He's preparing us for heaven and for the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that final day, the Lord will present his church holy and without blame before the Father in love. And here is the Holy Spirit in us, working, sanctifying. Are we grieving him? Are we hurting him? Disappointing him? Making him sad? And we grieve the Spirit in the way that Paul has indicated already. And then in verse 31, 32, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. If we're not forgiving people, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. God in Christ has dealt with our sin and forgiven us. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life is love, as well as joy and peace and, and the other fruit. But I close on this note. Fourthly, the remarkable love of God in Christ. Notice how verse 2 in chapter 5 reads. Walk in love, live in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So verse 2 is reinforcing the instruction to resemble God, to live in love, and here is the supreme example of love. 
And the Apostle Paul keeps coming back in his letters to this glorious truth and demonstration of the love of God in Jesus Christ. For Paul, there's nothing like it. Calvary is at the very centre of God's purpose. It's as if the Apostle Paul cannot take his eyes off the cross. Such love, he says, such sacrifice. I often feel that, reading Paul, that he's mesmerised by the cross. The sight of the cross thrills him, excites him, humbles him. He cannot get over the amazing facts surrounding the cross. John Newton can talk about amazing grace. But Paul was literally amazed. Another hymn writer talks about almost too wonderful to be, that God's own Son should come and die for me. That's how Paul felt. And for him, it impacted his daily life. He knew he owed everything to Christ. The cross is where God dealt with our sin, purchased salvation. And Paul would tell us the cross is what I'm looking at. And as I look at the Lord Jesus and remember what he did for me, that love is so amazing, so divine, demands my soul like what says, my life, my all. So walk in love, live in love. Let love permeate your life, your attitude, your speech, your behaviour, your relationships. Be a person who loves anyone and everyone. And especially in a church context. There's too much quarrelling in different churches. I go around and I, I hear of divisions and problems. Let love permeate our lives. Be kind to one another. Considerate. Tender-hearted. The opposite of being hard. Forgiving one another. Then Paul underlines again the cross. Just as Christ also has loved us. Us. He changes the personal pronoun from you to us. He includes himself. He's loved me, he's loved us. We were enemies, we were rebels. But Christ has loved us and God has forgiven us in him. Calvin described an unbeliever and at times a believer like a stubborn horse that becomes wild, unmanageable when God's law is applied. They don't want to be controlled by God. Sometimes a Christian can be like that when God's providence goes against their desires. Their plans are, are smashed. They begin to point a finger at God. We are rebels. And yet Christ loved us. And he loved us in such a way that he has given himself. God is the one who gave himself in Christ, the rich one, who in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, it wasn't a prize to be held on to. He enjoyed the purity of heaven. He enjoyed the joy, the privileges, prerogatives of heaven. 
But he laid these aside, took to himself our human nature, he stooped, became the God-man, a servant, humbled himself, lived a life of love, of obedience, and gave himself on the cross, the Prince of Glory. Didn't put his own feelings and comforts first, didn't choose an easy route, didn't turn his back on it. He gave no excuses. He, he was steadfastly going to Jerusalem. His will was to do the will of the Father. He loved the church and gave himself for it. And so he gave himself an offering, which was himself. He was a sacrifice, not just the priest. And he was actively giving himself willing to be punished for our sins. And there was the penal judgment of God the Father laying on him our sin, smitten of God. And our Lord cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is our substitute. And there's a curtain between the Father and the Son just closing a little. There's darkness the Son who has been one with the Father, intimate fellowship from eternity. Now there's darkness, and the forsakenness. Just as God in Christ has loved us and gave himself for us, a sweet-smelling aroma, a complete surrender to God, the Father approving the sacrifice, and the sinner being freed, and justified and accepted by God. Believers, if God has so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We are his dear children. We are called upon to resemble him in our lives. And if you're not yet a Christian, I invite you to come to this gracious and wonderful God who invites you to come and to trust him. He will extend his love to you. He will forgive sin. He can reconcile you to, to the Father through the death of the Lord Jesus. Come to him. Turn from your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will receive you warmly. He will not turn you away. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that such a subject as your love is too deep and too high for us to understand and to express. And yet, O oh Lord, we thank you it is true that you have so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. And we thank you for that precious death on the cross where he bore our sin in his own body upon the tree, we thank you, Lord, for the completion and the victory of that death. Oh, Lord, move us by your Spirit that we may be able to love you fervently with all our hearts and to present our bodies a living sacrifice to you. Lord, be with us, help us, 
grant our lives may reflect something of your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.